we are on our last section, God's Hand in Building of America. I love this seminar because it reminds me that God is a God of miracles. And don't you fret, he's not going to leave us now when he went through so much energy, you know, to wield his hand to, and to establish, what does it say, this first free and nation in modern times. He's not going to allow it to a, a, a collapse into oblivion, but we've got to do our part. And I think that's one of the reasons you're here today, just like Jana said, to learn so we can study. And so then we can reteach and re-remind ourselves, first of all, so we stay anchored in hope and then go out and help be agents of uplift in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and states and even the nation. So, you know, I hope that, uh, welcome again, I, I decorated this week for the 4th of July. I've got George Washington over my shoulder. I got all the busts and put them on my coffee table. We have Thomas Jefferson and George Washington watching over us girls. We're gonna be in good hands today. But I hope you can see by now the end of our seminar one. And by the way, they are all recorded. If for some reason you get busy, you can't hit a class. Remember, we also teach this exact same class on Thursday nights, but with my man, my main squeeze, Al and I, my husband and I teach this together, which by the way, I hope you all had wonderful Father's Day. We couldn't make it without our good men and good grandfathers in our life and we honor and we celebrate them. And so if you miss a class today, you can always watch it recorded or you can attend the Thursday night class, 7.30 Mountain Standard Time. So I hope at this point in our first seminar, you can see God's involvement in the establishment of this land. I have to think it's indisputable with our little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the Pilgrims and Samuel Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson and then the, all the miracles of George Washington and the Revolutionary War. And today we're going to talk about James Madison, the father of the Constitution, and Benjamin Franklin. You know, when we can see things from the 30,000 foot level and not sometimes down in the weeds when we're just actually living our daily lives, you really can see God wielding his hand from the beginning. And, and it's very clear to me that God is in the types of, God is interested in the type of government that his children live under. And he influences these governments. God is in to government because he understands that the type of government we have determines the kind of freedoms that we have. And he knows that freedom is the path to the greatest level of happiness for us. And so, and he, and he says this all throughout the scriptures and in, in the Bible, I always share my, my favorite Liberty scriptures in uh, Galatians 5.1, stand fast in Liberty that has made you free, not in bondage. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, he says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so, you know, you've heard me say this before, but we can't have the gospel of Jesus Christ without the gospel of freedom, because we need a maximum environment of freedom in order to be able to worship God the way he intended. And our founders knew this and they recognized that God's hand was in the setting up in the building and at the establishment of this land and these inspired documents that came for, uh, forth. In fact, our very first freedom, the very first amendment in the constitution and the bill of rights, that first amendment sets out very clearly, they wanted us to be free to worship God as we saw fit. 
these truly were some of the wisest men and you don't have wise men without wise women behind them. These were the wisest men and women. I believe that God had at that time in this world, he rose them up. He graduated them from his very unique university of hard knocks that we're all enrolled in. And uh, I think once again, it's important to know that look, God isn't going to leave us hanging. He established this free people in modern times to see us perpetuate, not to collapse in oblivion. So we're here. We're taking the time and the energy in the summer to learn these principles of freedom and then have God open our hearts as to what we can do when we learn this information. What do you want me to do? Here am I, Lord. Send me. What do you want me to do? And it's going to look a little different for each one of us. So here we go. We're on section four, seminar one. We just, the revolutionary war, we talked about it last week. I love that uh, lesson, the great miracles in George Washington. Now, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson knew that the foundation upon which this new country had been established was badly laid with that weak articles of confederation. That was really our first constitution. And remember, there was no executive branch in the articles of confederation. There was just kind of 13 independent colonies. The federal government had no power to tax or to enforce uh, certain things. And so it was almost a miracle that the constitutional convention three years later was going to be able to take place because it looked like none of the states wanted it for, for all appearances. They just were prepared to go their separate ways after we won the Revolutionary War. Now we won it in, in 1781 and it took about two years for the official documents and treaty to, to declare us a free state to take place. And that is when George Washington came into New York and bid farewell to his troops, remember, and, and then reported uh, to Congress in Annapolis and then went on home to Martha. But there were rumblings in 1783 that the army was planning to seize power and to make George Washington king. And that's the last thing he wanted. He wrote to every state George Washington did, pleading with them to hold a convention at the earliest possible date, but nothing came of it. And so during that three year period, he held several little different trade uh, conferences with, with uh, certain states that would show up I think five, the most they had were five states to work out some trade and fishing rights. And those, those conferences went very well. And so I, I think those that attended knew that if Congress could just call a general convention so the states could work out some of their problems and, and work on some of the economics and politics that the Articles of Confederation didn't really address, you know, during this time, though, it's interesting, George Washington, he comes home after eight years of, uh, you know, being the commander and chief commander of the Continental Army. And he said, uh, you, you think the Lord might, you know, take it easy on him a little bit, pour on some blessings for such great service to our nation. But he said at this point when he came home, <laughs> when Mount Vernon was in disrepair, he said, I've never felt this poor since I was 15 years old. George Washington was not able to pay his debts. He tried to sell some of his land, but he didn't have any bidders. He was deeply embarrassed uh, at the money that he owed. 
he had to put off the sheriff three times, send him away when the sheriff came around to collect taxes and to pour salt on poor George Washington's wounds. He received a polite letter from the church seeking prompt payment of an over, overdue payment for his pew. So, you know, it just reminds me that the Lord, sometimes when we think we're trying to do so much to, you know, build a strong home and family and marriage and neighborhood and community, and sometimes things still don't go our way. But I love George Washington in the wonderful book. You know, I've recommended all these books, The Real George Washington. He, there's a quote that says that he said during this time period when he was home and, you know, it's, his personal, his properties were kind of in shambles. His finances were not looking good. He said, even still, George Washington said, find happiness without health or wealth. It's still better to go laughing than crying through the rough journey of life. All right. He got it. That life wasn't meant to be, uh, uh, you know, lived on a feather bed, so to speak. So even though he was kind of fraying at the edges here, he was still, you know, he, he didn't uh, retire and hang up his hat and go back to farming. He, he realized that the country by all means was not in a strong stable position. And so Congress did schedule a, a constitutional convention to meet in uh, on May 14th, I believe the date is 1787. The Constitutional Convention became the most important convocation of political leaders. And it, it was fortunate that every state realized that they need representation. So they all sent some of their most outstanding leaders in the states. There were 73 delegates appointed to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787. However, none of the states provided expenses for their representatives, so only about 55 ended up coming, and many of them, including little James Madison, that would go on to become the father of the Constitution, actually had to borrow money so he could attend the Constitutional Convention. And so all of the states sent representatives except for Rhode Island, that they would eventually go on to call Rogue Island. They, the Rhode Island didn't want to have anything to do with this convention. In fact, 13 of their businessmen were apologetic and wrote a letter to the convention apologizing for the behavior of their leaders. And wouldn't you know, at this time as well in 1787, because of personal circumstances, it was very hard for George Washington to, to attend. His brother had died. His mother and sister were seriously ill and he was in great pain because of rheumatism that had set in his little body after eight years of being out in the elements during the Revolutionary War. He couldn't even sleep without you know, pain throughout the night, but he had good friends who had persuaded him to attend and some think the convention would have failed if they had not had the strength and the stability of George Washington there to kind of just settle everyone down when things got very heated. And, uh, you know, it makes me think about Thomas Jefferson, too, in 1776, when he was called to go to Philadelphia, and he would be tasked to write the Declaration of Independence, how he asked for uh, an excuse not to go, because I believe his Thomas Jefferson's mother in 1776 had just died. 
his wife was sick. He had just buried a little girl and he felt like he needed to be in Virginia and, and work on this constitution. But he was persuaded as well. And it, you know, as I think of these two great men that almost missed the opportunity to do what they did, it just makes me think of how many times I'm asked to be someplace where I know I need to be, but I just don't feel well, or there's just too much going on in my life. I'm too busy. It's too difficult. My bandwidth, maybe I feel like it's just, I just don't have it in me. And when we just show up, when we know we need to be there, the difference that it made. So George Washington was there, even little Benjamin Franklin attended. He was 81 years old. He would be the oldest a representative there representing Philadelphia. And it was very difficult for Benjamin Franklin. He had gout and most days he had to be carried by uh, on a sedan chair, you know, those chairs, they call them sedan chairs, by four trustees from the local prison carried him to the convention because he had such a hard time walking. And two, two of the men who made some of the greatest contributions to the conventions weren't able to attend because they were serving John Adams as a minister, a diplomat, and ambassador to England. And Thomas Jefferson was also serving as a minister um, in France. But both of these men would write things that are, or send things that would be used and would be studied by the delegates in that convention. Thomas Jefferson, he would send books, like hundreds of books to James Madison. So Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are both from Virginia. They had been friends, close friends. And so Thomas Jefferson um, would send hundreds of books to James Madison over the course of the last few years to prepare him for this moment. And Jefferson corresponded with him on what he considered the essential elements of a good constitution. And, um, and so it's, it's said that uh, James Madison came to the convention better prepared. No one came better prepared than James Madison really taught by uh, Thomas Jefferson. So James Madison would be the youngest delegate at, at the convention. He was 29 years old. He wasn't married yet. And he was a short man, uh, a slight stature. And, and he was kind of a sickly young man. This is one of the reasons he didn't fight in the Revolutionary War. But he studied at Princeton um, under John Witherspoon, who, would, um, who had signed the Declaration of Independence and John Witherstone would become the president of Princeton uh, in New Jersey at that time. And so Madison worked closely with Thomas Jefferson in Virginia um, in, in working through legislation reform. And so really, like I mentioned, he was considered one of the most able political leaders in the National Assembly, this James Madison. And he would go on to become, I'm repeating myself now, but I just want to make sure you have it. He would become known as the father of the cons father of the constitution. You know, I don't know if you've had a chance to um, come back East and go to Montpelier. This was the life, uh, lifelong home of James Madison. And it's only about 30 minutes from Monticello where Thomas Jefferson lived. So at Montpelier, which was James Madison's home that is open today for tours, it's beautiful. It's on 2,500 acres. And he would marry Dolly Madison 10 years after uh, this um, 
Constitutional Convention at age 39. And Dolly was 26. She was a widow. She had been married previously and had one surviving son. And Dolly is everything that you have heard uh, about her throughout history. She was a great hostess, charming, popular, um, in the social graces would host many parties. She would become the first lady because James Madison would go on to become the fourth president. And during the war of 1812, indeed it was Dolly Madison who left her personal belongings behind when they were, the English were coming to burn the White House. And she broke the frame that George Washington, that Gilbert Stewart's portrait of uh, Washington in the White House, she broke the frame pulled out the painting, rolled it up and ran for, uh, ran to safety. And so um, she would go on to live, Dolly Madison would go on to live 13 years after James Madison passed and she would die at 81, but her son mismanaged their home in Montpelier. So in her old age, she had to sell it and she actually died an impoverished woman. And so, you know, when you hear these stories, you know, these, these men and women did such amazing things, but life was hard for them. And, you know, they stayed the course and they did not give up and die and curse God, but just know that, you know, when life continues to be a struggle for us, when we're trying to do all that we can, just know that we are in good company. We sometimes like to idealize or romanticize these great founding fathers and mothers, but life if you would have asked them, they would have said, my life was very hard. But we just don't know what our efforts might mean to our, our, our generations, you know, in, in years to come. And so anyways, that's a little bit about James Madison. I love girls. I'm going to recommend this book here. It's called The Miracles of America. And I would read this to my children every night. There's about 25, 30 little miracles of America. And I would read a, a, one of these stories and it's illustrated. And there's a wonderful one. You can't see it, I'm sorry there. But it says, the most abled amongst the men, James Madison. And it said how he was just tireless. He, at the Constitutional Convention, on opening day, he took a seat right in the front room so he could hear what everyone was saying. And day after day for four months, he took copious notes. He was bowed over his notes, steadily writing, and he was never absent. He didn't miss a day. And then at night, he would fill in what he wasn't able to put um, in his little notebook of everything that went on at that constitutional convention. And he became quite sick over the course of this four months, and he withered down to less than 100 pounds but even still, he never missed a day. And um, those, those notes of James Madison were held under lock and key for 30 years in the Library of Congress. And then they were made known public. And this wonderful book here is called The Constitutional Convention, uh, a narrative history from the notes of James Madison is in our library. I have not read this book. My husband has, but if you're interested, it's all the notes that he took each day, the conversations and the haggling back and forth. And so um, anyways, okay. So all of the delegates from Virginia show up on May 14th. There were seven delegates from Virginia, but there none of the other delegates had arrived. But in a way, they considered that a blessing because those seven delegates from Virginia 
worked, began holding early morning planning sessions and and Madison helped them outline the results of all of he and Jefferson's research through the years. And they structured a government that was going to be completely different from the Articles of Confederation. And so the Constitution Convention officially opens. Can I just say those seven delegates from um, Virginia were wonderful men. That was George Washington, it was James Madison, a man by the name of James Blair, George Mason, a wonderful university is named after him in Virginia, Edmund Randolph, who was the governor of Virginia at the time, and George Wythe, who would, you know, that wonderful law professor who taught Thomas Jefferson everything he knew, and James McClure, McClune, McClure. Yeah, so seven. Uh, so those were the men that kind of put together these 15 initial resolutions. So the first order of business was to elect a president on May 25th. They had enough uh, delegates from seven states, so they decided to begin the convention. And George Washington, the first order of business was to elect him as the president of the uh, convention. And it was really his stature and his experience and the profound respect and love they had for him that just kind of steadied this four month convention. Now they had a secretary uh, of the constitutional convention, but he was not really competent and it really was James Madison who was the real historian and secretary. And like I said, he took copious notes. He sat in front at night, he would fill in the details of the conversations. Uh, that were had. The convention followed a procedure that facilitated informal debate. Um, What they would do is uh, they would resolve themselves into a committee on the whole, consisting of all the convention delegates. And what this would do would allow them to reach temporary decisions that wouldn't be accounted as their official vote. And so what would happen is um, George Washington would step down as the president of, of chair and he would turn that position over to Nathaniel Gorham and, and who would take his place as the chairman of the committee of the whole. And then they could kind of hash it out and change their minds and go back and forth. And it was during the hot summer months from May until September of Philadelphia. If anyone's been on the East Coast during the summer months, it's 100 degrees and the humidity is 100 degrees. But the men purposely closed all the windows at that little independence hall there because they didn't want people listening in and, and you know, determining, oh, Franklin believes this way and then have Franklin vote another way. They didn't want to be accused of flip-flopping, but they wanted to have the freedom to be able to hash it out and to hear each other's ideas. And, and so, and then once they would come to an agreement on an issue, they would then turn themselves back into a, a convention and vote formally on the question. And this is really how they operated. And they came to general consensus on all the issues of the constitution, except for three issues. And that was how to uh, regulate or abolish slavery and how the small states and the large states should be properly represented. So so that one didn't have an advantage over the other. And also um, a compromise on um, interstate commerce, whether the federal government should you know be involved in and how the the states do business with with one another sell their goods and textiles and those kind of things and so those were the only three 
compromises. And, and we'll talk about the slavery issue uh, in two, you know, in next week when we talk about Article One, Section Nine, that the Northern states, all, all of all of these founders knew, you know, slavery was not a good thing. Look, they wanted freedom from a tyrannical government in England. This is what they had fought, you know, this this frustrating, arduous war for eight years over. So they they knew that, you know, then to decide to, you know, enslave certain people when they fought so hard to be free from, you know, King George in England was not right. But they also knew that the Southern states, those slaves were a part of the mortgages that were tied to the banks and their property. And they knew that if they abolished slavery right then and there, that all the Southern states would be thrown into economic peril. And the founders also worried about, you know, the slaves at this point, they weren't sure if, you know, they were just trying to keep the nation together and do union building. But now that there, there would be, you know, a, a large group of people that wouldn't exactly even know how to live on their own because all they had known was slavery. My husband does an hour long presentation on, on this at the thomasjeffersoncenter.com. I recommended it a few weeks ago and he explains the dilemma that they were in. Um, in a, uh, a seminar that he gives, it's called um, uh, Founders in the Slavery and the Smear Job, the Smear Campaign Against the Founders. And so he explains this really well. I, I, I would really recommend um, watching that. But so, so that was, so they were going to give, the Northern States said, we'll give you 20 years to phase out um, the importation and uh, uh, and they don't even use the word slavery in the Constitution. There's not one word mentioned of slavery. They did not want it in that document. And so they use some sort of phrasing about not allowing other people to be in bondage to one another in return uh, for um, uh, the North was going to allow then we'll give you 20 years to phase out the, uh, the importation of slavery, but we want the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. This was the compromise uh, because some of the Southern states were withholding some of their textiles or their goods to some of the Northern states that they didn't like. And they felt like that would give the Southern states an unfair advantage if, if the federal government couldn't help regulate some of this commerce between the colonies. So those were, um, those were the three. And then, and then we'll talk about the other um, compromise was, you know, how the, the states were going to be represented, the small states and the large states. So these were the only real compromises in the constitution. So it's a mistake when textbooks describe the constitution as a conglomeration of compromises because it wasn't. The founders talked things through until they reached general consensus. Now, wouldn't that be amazing if that's how members of Congress operated today? They were able to do this, these founders, because they all had the same foundation of knowledge. They all were very astute and, and well versed in the Bible. And they studied the great thinkers from earlier ancient times of Montesquieu and Cicero and Blackstone. And if you um, are reading the 5,000 year leap, you will realize that the founders were all reading out of the same books. So they all had kind of came to this convention with, you know, 
hearts that were equally yoked. They wanted to see this nation survive and they had all read, you know, uh, these great thinkers throughout history. And that's probably some of our problems today that we're not coming to the table, you know, all reading out of the same books, being taught the same things in the homes. And so um, they started the convention uh, right off addressing these 15 resolutions that the Virginia delegate had, had put together. Since no country in the world had ever been structured this way, every single point had to be carefully analyzed and debated. Now, keep in mind, remember that Congress had initially told the delegates that they were just meeting for the sole purpose of amending the Articles of Confederation. But there really was a general feeling amongst all the delegates that they needed something completely different, a new different kind of constitutional structure was needed. And the delegates, I think felt that it was okay to change so radically what, what they had, because ultimately Congress and the states were going to have to vote on and approve this. So they felt justified in pro completely proposing a new constitution instead of just kind of patching up this defective articles of confederation. And so, we, like I had mentioned, it took four months to reach final agreement on these many prickly issues that were going to be raised. Remember last week how we talked about it took 16 months to kind of uh, come to some determination about the Articles of Confederation, and even that, it, it, it still wasn't very well written. So this only taking four months to have to go through each issue and analyze it the way they did, you can really see how God was in these details of softening these men's hearts and inspiring them and helping them to see and understand and come to general consensus. And that's what happens when, you know, like-minded men and women wanting the same thing come together, are willing to be taught and willing to be humbled and to hear each other out. God can really do amazing things uh, with that kind of receptiveness. So the first two weeks in the convention, they talked about those uh, Virginia resolves and they worked through some of these points of general agreement and then postponed, postponed the difficult things for a few weeks later. They worked on the easy stuff first. But in the middle of June, they'd been at it about two weeks, William Patterson of New Jersey asked to have one day free to make a new plan for the smaller states. The smaller states wanted to present a small plan because they'd at this point only been hearing this plan from the, the largest state in, in the union at this point, Virginia. So the next day, New Jersey comes back and they put forth this plan um, and Patterson says that the smaller states, we just want to scrap all these Virginia uh, resolutions and we want to go back to patching up the Articles of Confederation. And so um, James Wilson of Pennsylvania actually the following day compared the Virginia plan to the New Jersey plan point by point. And you see, if you have your um, seminar open, you see uh, the little diorama here of the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. So let's just go through this. Um, the Virginia plan for the legislature, they wanted two branches and the New Jersey plan wanted just one body. And what they actually ended up getting was one legislative branch with two chambers, a house and a Senate. And then the source of their power, the Virginia plan wanted 
the power to be with the voice of the people. And the New Jersey plan wanted the states to be able to dictate and govern. And they, it was a little bit of both. They got both the House, which represented the voice of the people, and the Senate was going to represent the how uh, the the voice of the states and that we know was undone when the 17th amendment was passed in 1913 and we will talk about that and has greatly disrupted the balance of power that our founders intended and then the executive branch the virginia plan wanted just one executive and the new jersey plan wanted i guess multiple uh, presidents and of course we just got one executive the president and then the legislative action, they wanted, the Virginia plan wanted it to be by the, um, the majority. So like 51 out of 100 senators. So the majority would be able to rule. And the New Jersey plan wanted just a small minority. And we know, of course, we're governed by in the House and Senate by the majority vote. And then the extent of the legislative power, the Virginia plan wanted the legislative branch to be able to handle all national concerns, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, just do it all. And the New Jersey plan wanted them to only have limited powers. And so they got a little bit of both because in article one, we'll talk about next week that talks about the legislative branch, they are confined to just 20 enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. But they also do um, kind of oversee some national concerns. And then how to remove an executive, how to remove a King George, should there he grow to become one? They That Virginia plan wanted a, the president to be able to be impeached, removed from office. And the New Jersey plan wanted it to um, occur under an application by the majority of states. And we know that the Virginia plan went out because the House impeaches and, and then the Senate removes. And we've seen, we've seen that played out a few times in, in history. So while the convention was contemplating these two plans, um, Alexander Hamilton, now we all know him, uh, rose and he presented an entirely different plan. He said, this is way too dangerous, these two plans. We're, we're uh, treading in untried waters here. We need to kind of go back to a British pattern of the, uh, the single executive being chosen for life. And he, the kind of like the king could veto anything and everything in England, that's what he wanted also in the executive branch. And he wanted the senators to be chosen for life, just like the English did in the House of Lords. And he wanted the governors of the states to be appointed by the federal government, just like the King of England had appointed colonial governors before the Revolutionary War. Imagine that. So it says that Hamilton's plan was applauded by all and supported by none. It wasn't even discussed, let alone voted upon. So Hamilton was a well-respected man in this body because he had served ably and nobly next to George Washington during the Revolutionary War, but this plan was dud. And so uh, that would be the end of Hamilton's plan. And he ultimately would get his feelings hurt and leave for a little a short time, but he ultimately would come back. You know, I think we know Alexander Hamilton because of that Lynn manuel Miranda's Hamilton. I don't know if you've, any of you have had a chance to see that show on Broadway. Anyone, anyone seen Hamilton or the traveling Broadway show? Oh, it is so good. It's so like a rap music of history. 
And to be honest with you, when I saw it, I'm like, I think they kind of got history right. Because, you know, normally Broadway does not get historical things right. Or, you know, the angle which they come is not favorable at all to, you know, patriots and freedom and God. But, um, and Lin-Manuel just came out with the new movie. Remember I talked about it last week, In the Heights. There's not many movies in the theater. And it's kind of that, in that same kind of, hip hop, hip rap dance that Hamilton was, but it's, it's a fun show. And I really re I recommend going to see Hamilton at some point. I think it'll be around for years, but it's kind of a good um, entertaining way to learn a little bit about his life. So he was a senior staff, uh, um, Alexander Hamilton, senior staff member to George Washington, like I mentioned in the Revolutionary War. And he would go on to become George Washington's secretary of the treasury. And he would be promoted and, and the primary author of George Washington's economic policies. And he would go on to write George Washington's farewell address when George Washington uh, left office as president after four years. Hamilton um, got started, though, as an illegitimate child, never knew um, his father. He was born in the West Indies on a little Caribbean island. And as a young boy, he came to America as a teenager. He was sponsored by a, a wealthy merchant. And he um, went to Columbia, the King's College, and there he studied law. And he would go on to become a member of Congress uh, for New York. And he uh, practiced law and he actually founded the Bank of New York and, of course, would be a signer uh, on the Constitution, even though he got his feelings hurt and left for a time. But he did come back, bless his heart. Sometimes men are hot headed like that. So we just need to be gentle and receive them back when they come back, when they come to their their senses. And he would go on to become the primary writer of the Federalist Papers. He wrote 51 of those 85 Federalist Papers that would be published in the newspapers after the Constitution was written, uh, convincing and explaining the Constitution and what the founders meant when they wrote the Constitution. And those Federalist Papers really helped to win the hearts of the members of Congress that were going to have to vote on this Constitution and for it you know, the people in the states uh, to accept this constitution. And of course, we know that Alexander Hamilton died way too soon at 49. He was a father of eight. He got in a duel with Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr at the time was the vice president of the United States to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr ran for president and it was an electoral tie so the House of Representatives came in and broke the tie in favor of Thomas Jefferson. But remember in that day, the second person who got the second highest votes became the automatic vice president. So he became Thomas Jefferson's vice president and it's said that Jefferson never fully trusted Burr and relegated him to kind of not a very important role. And at some point in Burr's life, he ran for the New York governor and Alexander Hamilton did not support him. So there was kind of bad blood between them and they got in some kind of spat and Burr challenged him to a duel on the New Jersey side in 1804. These men show up. I'm, I'm thinking, well, one was the vice president of the United States. The other was, you know, a respected, you know, um, man and father of eight but I guess when pride gets involved what does the what does the devil do after after a fall or pride comes before a fall is that a saying so anyways um 
they had they had their guns. I mean, who survives a duel? <laughs> I still don't know why they thought this was a good idea. Someone was going down. And so the gun fired by Alexander Hamilton didn't even, you know, hit the mark, but the bullet uh, hit um, from Burr hit Alexander Hamilton and he would die a day or two later. And um, he was living, oh girls, put this on your bucket list. Two years earlier, Alexander Hamilton had built a home. It was the only home that he had ever owned in his life at age 47 and where his family lived. And it is still standing today on 141st Street, just a little bit beyond the Bronx in um, Manhattan. And you can just take the red line and just get off at like 136 and walk a couple blocks and it's his house is open and there's a little visitor center and you kind of really catch the spirit to be in it be in his home. And so um, he was buried at Trinity Church, which still exists today. It's just about a seven minute walk from that St. Paul's Church where George Washington and Congress had their first official business after George Washington was sworn in, remember as president in 1789, they all walked to St. Paul's Church. And just about a couple blocks down from that is the Trinity Church where Alexander Hamilton is buried. And if you go there today, it's this beautiful headstone and and he's right there in, in the graveyard. So anyways, put that on your bucket list, Alexander Hamilton's home in New York City. But needless to say, um, Hamilton left for a short time, but he he would be back. And um, on June 19th, it kind of began to be known as the crisis period. Now they had been meeting for about four weeks. They had kind of hammered out the easy parts <laughs> of building a new nation. And it was during this crisis period when the elderly Benjamin Franklin got up and they were worried that the delegates were just going to get heated enough and go home and the whole thing was going to be disbanded. And so Benjamin Franklin gets up rising to his feet in great pain. And he says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of man. Now, this is Benjamin Franklin. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an, that an empire can rise without his aid? He says, I believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed. We shall not succeed in this political building no better than the builders of, Bab of Babel. And then he goes, he begs them to begin to pray, to begin to implore the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations every morning in this assembly before we begin our business. So this, this speech was kind of like the speech they say that saved the constitution because it had a sobering effect on the delegates there. And they, they seemed to temper their quarreling and to set about their tasks with greater determination after this speech by, you know, a man that they all revered and respected. Um, he, uh, when we say we have forefathers in our nation, we literally do have four fathers. This is where this term came from. The first father was George Washington, the father of our country. The second father is Samuel Adams, the father of the Revolutionary War. We talked about that a few weeks ago. 
James Madison today would go on to be known as the father of the Constitution. And Benjamin Franklin would go on to be known as the father of morality. He was called in that day the golden patriot. Now, isn't that interesting? Because that's probably not what you think of when you think of Benjamin Franklin, the father of morality. More money has been spent on decimating and maligning his character than any other founding father because historians, modern day historians have made him out to be, and you see it in the movies and documentaries of, as a womanizer, as a prankster, as a hard-headed businessman with illegitimate children everywhere. As a young man, he actually wrote a book called The Book of Virtues, and it highlights 13 moral virtues that he wished to perfect himself by. And he had a little chart to monitor himself. And some of them were frugality, moderation, sincerity, justice, humility. This was the kind of man that Benjamin Franklin was. And he was, he was greatly respected. He, he had an important role in this constitutional convention of, as kind of a conciliatory one because um, he was 20 to 30 years older than most of the delegates and he commanded a lot of respect and, and he had a powerful influence over them. Uh, one of the delegates from Georgia said he was an extraordinary man and he didn't necessarily shine in public councils. He wasn't known as a great orator, but he could tell a story in a style that was more engaging than he had ever heard. And he possessed an activity of a mind equal to a young man of 25. And um, Benjamin Franklin would go on to say this about the delegates at that convention. He said, a group of men chosen, they were to restructure this national government and men, men of character, of prudence and ability. He said this was the most respectable assembly he had ever seen or been a part of. This is what Benjamin Franklin said about the men uh, involved in the Constitutional Convention. And it's said that he would come most days to the convention and that he would stay, he would either come early or stay afterwards uh, several hours to continue to conduct the state business for um, Pennsylvania because he also served in its Congress. And so um, it's so interesting about five, six years ago, my husband served in the state Senate in Utah and we were in the governor's home, the governor's mansion right down on South Temple in Utah in 2015. And the governor was speaking at this little event and he was kind of bragging how he was a descendant, a cousin of Benjamin Franklin. And then he went on to say, well, you know, we all know he had a history and he liked the women and that book, but, but, but he was a, you know, good patriot man. I mean, that those, I, I always think that just that there's such a disconnect because God doesn't bring about his purposes through de degenerates and perverts and that kind of thing. So I, I, and I knew the truth behind Benjamin Franklin and how his character had so been maligned because if, if, you know, modern historians can make you believe that our founding fathers were imperfect and womanizers and hypocrites and so forth, then maybe we'll accept that in our current day leaders. And we know that's the farthest thing from the truth that these were the wisest men God had who he rose them up to do what he did. So I went up to the governor, um, Herbert, after uh, he spoke and I said, 
Did you know that Benjamin Franklin was known as the father of morality, the golden patriot? I said, I'm, go I'm going to give you a book. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to bring by a book to your office tomorrow, the real Benjamin Franklin that tells the truth about your wonderful you know, ancestor, your cousin, Benjamin Franklin. And sure enough, like two weeks later, the governor, you can't see it, wrote me a letter thanking me for this book. And so, you know, girls, it's just a reminder to me as you learn the truth about these founding fathers, you might have to stand and defend them. And when people speak untruths about Thomas Jefferson and his slave children by uh, Sally Hemming and all these lies that have been perpetuated by modern historians, it's incumbent upon us to defend these founding fathers. And so that was kind of a fun note. Now, during this time, during the convention the um, in July, from the 1st of July to the end of July, where it was this crisis period, they, um, they, they were having a hard time deciding on how to vote the president of the United States in office. It required over 60 ballots in the convention to, to just even determine how a president should be elected. And it was during this dark period that, Tom, or that um, George Washington <laughs> was known to say, I almost despair at seeing a favorable issue to the proceedings of this, this convention. And I almost repent having had any agency in this business. So he was feeling very weary about, you know, all the bickering back and forth. And it's observers said that George Washington during this crisis period in the convention looked as grim as he did when he was at Valley Forge. And we know what a dark period that was in the war. But, you know, I, once again, I love these men. They got weary, but they stayed the course. And it just reminds me, we're going to feel worried and hopeless and despondent sometimes uh, with some of our efforts in our homes and our marriages, out in our communities, but do not give up. These men did not give up. And so they had a breakthrough on July 16th. The delegates were able to agree on allocating representation. The small states had been determined to have one vote for each state as in the Articles of Confederation. But now they decided that the larger states would have a representation based on population. Each state would have equal representation in the Senate but the seats in the House of Representatives would be apportioned to the states according to the population. And the key to this provision was that each house was going to be able to um, veto or have power over one another. And, and that holds today. So if the House determines a piece of legislation and it goes over to the Senate and the Senate passes it out, but makes some changes, those changes have to go back to the House and vice versa. And so um, this, legislation was approved uh, by both the House and the Senate. And it just shows me that the group as a whole is so much smarter than the smartest person in the group. And you can see how they worked through these contentious issues beautifully, you know, and there, there was some hashing out and, and some delegates came and, and went. But finally, by July 24th, all the principal issues in the constitution had been settled and a committee on detail was appointed um, and, uh, and they were able to come uh, to a conclusion here. And so it, it just, once again, if you're ever wondering, 
if what you're involved with is doing any good, isn't making a difference, just don't take your ball and go home. Just stick with it. And this is what these men did. It kind of reminds me when I first started teaching principles of liberty in my little family devotional. My husband thought I was a right-wing nut. My children were like, Mom, the devotional is going on too long. They gave me all kind of grief. But I just kept doing it. And I can see the difference it made, you know, with some of my efforts. So even if you get pushed back, just stay the course if you feel inspired. And these men did. They stayed the course. They didn't quit. Gouverneur Morris, who was a delegate from um, Pennsylvania, uh, and a signer of the declaration would go on to kind of tighten up the language. He, it went to the constitution to a special committee on style in September and governor Morris, there's a wonderful full scale uh, replica of the man at the national C constitutional center in Philadelphia. That's a marvelous place to go visit girls, the national constitutional center in downtown Philadelphia. And they have these life-size bronze statues of, of these delegates at the constitution and governor Morris had a peg leg. He was kind of an odd fellow, uh, but he was a fantastic um, writer. He was like considered the penman of the constitution because he just kind of polished up that final draft. And, and Governor Morris would actually go on to write the preamble, we the people of the United States of America, that kind of intro to the constitution. And so we just have two pages left, ladies. Thanks for hanging in there with us. The founders new government. So you can see the power base was structured. Do you see this diagram here in your seminar? exactly as it had been visualized uh, uh, throughout history, reading the ancient Israel and the Anglo-Saxons that we've talked about with common law and people's law. It was fixed firmly in the balance center of the political spectrum where you have tyranny on one hand, ruler's law and anarchy, no law on the other hand. So the separations of power are both vertical and horizontal. So we see the federal government at, at the top and then the states and thousands of counties and tens of thousands of communities and tens of millions of families and then hundred millions of individuals. Now, girls, this organization comes right out of the Old Testament of Genesis, Exodus and Deuteronomy where Moses made captains over tens and captains over fifties and over hundreds and thousands and 10,000s. And he wanted the local problems to be solved at the local level where the people were closest to the problems and best equipped to handle their problems. And then the, the hard, the difficult problems or issues were to be handled by Moses or by the federal government, so to speak. And, and um, James Madison said the powers delegated by this proposed constitution to the federal government are to be few and defined. See that little triangle up at the top? And those which are to be remain in the state governments are to be numerous and indefinite, all right? So strong local uh, self-government was going to be the keystone to preserving freedom. Our founders knew that. And they wanted only limited and carefully defined powers to be given to the government. All others were to be retained by the people at a local level to figure that out. And that's what it says in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment in the Bill of Rights as well. And then we also have horizontal, horizontal checks and balances with the three branches of power, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. It was kind of like these checks and balances of centering this new government right in the balance center of people's law it was kind of like a three-headed eagle 
Whereas, and you see this little diagram here, they share a common neck so that each department could be independent, but they couldn't support without, couldn't function without the support of each other. And so if you look at that diagram there, uh, each of the two wings is essential to keep the American Eagle in the balance center. And wing number one represents the problem solving wing, kind of like um, the, the House of Representatives. Every two years they're elected in and they wanna solve problems. And so they can get reelected again. But the, the, the wing of resource, which was the Senate, that's only you know, put in every six years that was supposed to be put in by the states. They stand on that wall and represent the states from an from a overambitious runaway federal government. And they ask the question, wait a minute, can our state afford this? Is this really necessary? So if either of these two wings fail to perform its job, the American Eagle will drift towards anarchy or tyranny. So if wing number one becomes infatuated with solving everyone's problem and, and using monies to you know, create new programs, much like we're seeing right now, we see that the Eagle will spin off towards the left, which is towards tyranny, which means the executive branch gets stronger and stronger and more overreaching and controlling. So if both of these wings fulfill their assigned functions, this is why we really do need to repeal that 17th amendment and, and give you know, our senators, uh, the states put in the senators. So the senators are beholden to states, not to um, special interest groups or PACs or unions or that kind of thing that ultimately they get their money from to pay for their $16 million every six years to run for office. So you can see, I'm, I'm getting into the constitution a little bit, there's been a disruption of our little eagle here. But we saw under the first hundred years of our history, both of these wings were fulfilling their assigned function and the American eagle was flying straighter and higher than any other civilization in history at that point. And that's what the founders had envisioned. And that's what we saw. I've given you the statistic before, but even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth because we were operating under these beautiful principles in the constitution and prosperity economics. And so anyways, girls, so there you have it on September 17th, 1887, 39 of the delegates signed. And uh, as the delegates were signing, James Madison carefully watched each one of them. And he noticed that when Benjamin Franklin signed, the old man wept, Madison recorded. And as the last delegate was signing, Benjamin Franklin referred to the carving of a sun on the back of a chair that George Washington sat at at the head of the uh, conference. And Benjamin Franklin said, I have often in the course of this session looked at that sun behind the president without really being able to know if it was a rising sun or if it was a setting sun. But at length, I now have the happiness to know that it is rising and not a setting sun. And that original chair there, you see a picture of that little sun on that chair is in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And you can take a tour. Uh, they give a little lecture in that very room where they signed the constitution. And you see that little chair with that little sun and it indeed was rising. So girls, I hope you beautiful mamas, I hope that you've enjoyed, we did it. You got through your first seminar. You are in school this summer girls. 
I hope that you have been able to see God's hand in the building of this nation and the events and the people that he used to establish this nation. He didn't go through all this effort to have it collapse. If we do our part, and it will take all of us doing work, he will reward our effort. He rewarded the efforts of all these great men and women he used. Look how he guided and inspired them. Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, the Pilgrims, um, Samuel Adams, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin. But we learned, huh, that he didn't necessarily take it easy on them, but they never grew weary enough to quit. They gave all that they could to this cause, and then God filled in the gaps and provided some miracles along the way. And this, I believe 100% with all my heart is what he will do for us. So as we get, go into manual two next week, or I don't have it to show you. I hope you've ordered it already. If you didn't order it today, it's $12 on our Moms for America store. We're going to talk about this charter of freedom, this constitution. We're going to break it down. There's seven articles. There's 27 amendments. I promise you, if you will stick with the next four weeks as we study the constitution, you will know more about the constitution than the majority of the people who call themselves American citizens, probably even some of our most of our elected leaders. So I promise to make it as interesting as and as applicable to our time. What does this mean for us as we hash out um, the Constitution? Anyways, with that, thank you so much. I bid you adieu.